Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. We'll be talking about the hip-hop origin story on this episode. The timing, of course, is not coincidental. You probably noticed quite a bit of press coverage this month about the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. And you may have read about a number of events planned to commemorate the big 5-0. Yo. (laughs) That coverage focuses on one moment in time in particular, a party in the rec room of an apartment building in the West Bronx and DJed by the legendary Cool Herc, held August 11th, 1973. Well, Herc debuted a new souped-up sound system at this party. That indeed was a significant milestone. Much like the dance halls of Herc's native Jamaica, the DJ with the sound system ruled the roost. But Herc did not really invent hip-hop on that specific day. And the apparent need to pin a start date on the dominant musical idiom of our time cheapens the greater narrative in our curmudgeonly and correct worldview. So let's meditate a bit on the formation of hip-hop culture for the next 90 minutes or so, shall we? Before there was Drake and Auto-Tune, before Tupac and Biggie, before Run DMC, there was the South Bronx of New York City of the 1970s. Arguably, no other genre of music is as tied to a super specific time and place as much as hip-hop. By 1970, Two decades of raised highway construction, redlining, and the migration of the middle class to all points north had created an American tragedy. The systemic impoverishment and degradation of an entire neighborhood. In the very early 1970s, legitimate gang warfare broke out in the Bronx. So too, did a longing for peaceful harmony over destruction, though. The gangs eventually called a truce in 1971, but the drugs and crime went nowhere. Neither did that longing for community and transcendence. And that's the context in which hip-hop gestated. Cold rock in a party for young people, including a wave of immigrants from Jamaica and all other Uh, Caribbean countries, became the competitive sport in place of gang life. The supremacy of the DJ, the MC's ability to hype the crowd and 
verbally beat the crap out of his peers. The fierce popping and locking of the b-boy dancers. The fresh style and territorial anarchy of graffiti. It all mattered. Doing it better than your opponent was the whole point of hip-hop's culture. That fire was the central source of hip-hop's evolution. And it still is today. On this episode, we'll discuss why hip-hop's origins are so unique. Why is it easier to connect dots between Flo Millie and Africa Bombada than it is to connect the dots between Death Valley Girls and Big Mama Thornton? We'll explain. We'll also marvel at the four elements of hip-hop, namely the DJ, MCing, breakdancing, and graffiti, and celebrate hip-hop's forefathers, which, beside Herc and Bombada, include Grandmaster Flash and Grandmaster Kaz. And we'll examine the end of the innocence, when the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight broke through on the radio and positioned hip-hop as an explosive export from the Bronx to your own neighborhood and beyond. Now, allow us to let author and hip-hop historian Jeff Chang kick us off with his own gorgeous meditation on the evolution and the revolution that is hip-hop. Quote, The new culture seemed to whirl backward and forward. A loop of history, history as a loop, calling and responding, leaping, spinning, renewing. In the loop, there is the alpha, the omega, and the turning points in between. The scene disappears, slips into endless motion, and reveals a new logic. The circumference of a worldview. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Uh, sadly, that was definitely a truth, a sad truth of the 1970s uh, for the Bronx. However, there was another uh, ancillary fire that was burning uh, just as uh, hotly or as brightly at the time. And that is what we're talking about in this episode. And it is the birth and the origins of what eventually became known as hip hop. Arturo, this uh, should be this should be an interesting uh, discussion. It is. This is a pure history episode. And uh, these are some of my favorites to do because of yeah. all the detail and the research and the information. And yeah. just the fact, you know, just to share stuff with people, share information that need educate, educate people, I guess, but also yeah. share information that needs to be known as well. Oh, and yeah. Hip hop, you know, it's, it's the 50th anniversary of the supposed birth of hip hop on that specific day of 1973. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it, it, people need to know like, how, how unique and special this genre of music was when it started. There was really yeah. nothing else like it in the world. With, with, with that, with that said, uh, you know where else uh, hip hop is 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 a, is a good thing and a and a big thing, right? In the parallel universe. Yeah, right? ab absolutely. And the, <laughs> yes, yes, you got that right. You want a car? Uh, we're now traveling over into the parallel universe. That that wonderful rip in the space time continuum, where we get to leave this world 
and its bad tastes and uh, social media madness. And we get to go back to a simpler time when uh, rock actually rocked and was on uh, the billboards and on the radio and on the cover of Rolling Stone. And they sold out the stadiums and uh, rock was the thing, man. Well, in the parallel universe, it still is. Uh, mm-hmm. Long way of saying that if it was up to us, the world would be structured so that the artists and songs and bands that we cover uh, in this segment of our show, The Parallel Universe, uh, would be uh, would be front and center. And uh, one one thing that I think you have to say about the regular universe, uh, I think one truism is that if that you're a woman in rock and roll in your 50s, the world is not terribly kind to you as far yeah. as exposure and right. as far as uh, reverence, but uh, you are here to correct that record uh, on this episode, aren't you? Yes, the album I'm talking about the, the, that came out this year by P.J. Harvey, I Inside the Old Year Dying. Now, you may be wondering why an artist with such a big name as P.J. Harvey's is being featured in our Parallel Universe segment, which is supposed to feature artists that in a parallel universe where rock music is still a pop cultural force, would be, should be huge. Let me explain. For an exactly 20-year span, from 1992 to 2011, one Polly Jean Harvey produced one of the richest, most adventurous, most consistently brilliant, and most challenging discographies slash catalogs in rock and pop history. The woman is a legend and is more than deserving of all the critical accolades she has received for all these years. I understand that the Netflix streaming series Stranger Things reignited an interest in Kate Bush. And let's be honest, it was the main reason and the impetus to getting her inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Thank you, Stranger Things. But as far as solo female visionary British artists whose music truly endures, PJ Harvey goes up to Kate Bush and tells her, hold my beer. (laughs) So in our parallel universe, uh, PJ Harvey's in in our universe, PJ Harvey's commercial success, which unfortunately in our real universe has always been modest at best. In our parallel universe, she would be massive and Madonna level huge, and she'd already be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's how I justify PJ Harvey being in our Parallel Universe segment. Now, to her new album and first in seven years, I Inside the Old Year Dying. Musically, she seems to have gone back to the slightly subtly electronic textures that underlined her very underrated 1998 album, Is This Desire, except slowed way down with all kinds of space opened up. This approach makes sense because lyrically, she's drawing on the mysticism and the mystique of traditional English folk music. She has flirted with this before, particularly on 2007's White Chalk, and took it to a subversive level on 2011's Let England Shake. Lyrically, she goes full-on English folk here, but this is no pastiche. This is PJ Harvey we're talking about here, and this is the lyrical tropes of English folk put through a classic P.J. Harvey prism, meaning the end result is surreal and unsettling. Now, is the album any good? Well, like most albums that have come out this year, it's hit and miss. 
It really hits toward the end with the eerie, foreboding, ambient dread of A Child's Question July, where Harvey goes on about horny devils and goaty gods. <laughs> the final track, A Noiseless Noise, is the closest thing to a rock song, yeah. where Polly whips out her electric guitar and rides an intense tribal rhythm that unsettles rather than grooves, in a good way, of course. Unfortunately, there are three or four tracks that meander a little too much into ambient nothingness. Nevertheless, it's a solid record that finds PJ Harvey aging in new and interesting ways. If anything, hopefully this album will turn newcomers on to the wonders and the brilliance of Miss Harvey's back catalog. Chris? Uh, perhaps. Uh, you're right. It is a kind of a strange record uh, in terms of uh, you know, like that that slowed down, stretched out uh, folk yeah. uh, influence right. and the electronica. Uh, but it's it goes deeper than that. And uh, in looking at this a little bit, uh, so she, uh, PJ Harvey, she released or uh, she wrote uh, a, a very long lyrical poem called yeah. Orlam. Uh, and this was released in uh, 2022, and this album is based in large part on that poem. Uh, getting this from the review in allmusic.com, quote, the album expands on Orlam, her epic poem about the coming of age of Ira Abel, a young Dorset girl whose companions include the bleeding ghostly soldier Wyman Elvis and Orlam itself, a lamb's eyeball that serves as the village, uh, village's oracle. Mm. End quote. So it's this is like very traditional, mystical, yeah. uh, very it, it's it's a mythology. It's like her own. It's it's her own mythology, but steeped in traditional folk mythology, sort of like folk tales uh, yeah. from uh, that region. And I guess, you know, she she leans heavily on that dialect, even in the lyrics mm. of, of that Dorset region. And so she's she's getting very, very, very artsy. And so uh, the one thing I could say is that this is a good album for her to release and as a, an established legend or an established arena uh, act in the parallel universe. If it was her yeah. first, if it was her first one out of the gate, she might be in a little bit of trouble because it's, <laughs> it's a little bit eclectic. And so uh, it's a long way from dry and uh, to bring you my love uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and rid of me, but it's uh I said it's 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 pretty good. Uh, I can see yeah. it growing on me. Uh, you're right. The the end of the record, you know, noiseless noise, especially uh, makes me. It, it naturally the the best song on the album is the one that sounds the most like PJ Harvey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I could see this one growing on me because of its its ambitions and because you know she's working with the same people she has for years. I mean, it's Flood, mm -hmm. it's John Parrish, it's mm -hmm. uh, all the usual folks, and so. If it all sounds kind of familiar in, in a way, the sort of the, the the deep engineering and that sort of, uh, you know, she's really underrated as a guitarist, isn't she? Yeah, really yeah, is. Re Always real, has been. Yeah, real, really. She just uh, just a lot of contours and a lot of depth to what she does uh, with the guitar. So I think she maintains that uh, on this record uh, for sure. So. So now we we go back to we we do more traditional parallel universe things where and uh, this is just this and, and and here we're just going to talk about a song. Yes, we're talking about a song, but we're going more traditional in the sense that these are uh, a bunch of young guys from Leeds, England. Uh, yeah. The band here is Yard Act. Uh, We've covered it, them before. Yes, we have. If if Yard Act sounds familiar, it was because 
Uh, their uh, debut album from last year, The Overload, uh, placed yeah. quite high on both of our best uh, of year-end lists mm-hmm. for yeah. 2022. It actually uh, came in at number two on my list. I thought it was a brilliant record. And uh, this band, uh, they, they're they really, really uh, clever in the sense that the influences and the uh, the appropriations are obvious in terms yeah. of you know, and the reverence, but they do it in a way that it gets its own edge and its own sort of rhythmic uh, texture and flavor. And it has an unusual sensuality, which really lends right. itself uh, because of it, the lead singer and rapper of this band is a guy named James Smith. He doesn't uh, really rap. He just does spoken word. It's it's, it's it's like a spoken word, but but he he approaches rap in some cases, like and and especially like on this song, uh, it it you can get away with calling it like rap in the sort of the streets Eminem, uh, sort of more uh, Saul Williams sense. Yeah. Uh. So and so this song it just it was released just recently in the last couple of months. It's called the Trenchcoat Museum, and. Yeah. It's really exciting because it portends uh, uh, more new music by this band uh, in the near uh, future. So uh, this song, it's uh, a, by the way, it's a. I, I read about it on, uh, on the NME's website. It's a standalone single that will not be on their next album. Huh. Okay. Yep. Well, that's good yep. to know. As standalone singles goes, uh, this one kicks ass. It, it is, sure does. Yeah. It is eight eight minutes and eleven seconds of just raw, pure energy and groove. Uh, they basically take the formula that they established on the overload and they turn the knobs all the way up to about sixteen. Mm. And it's pure energy and groove and cheeky fun. Uh, it manages, and this is a neat trick uh, to kind of gives you the 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 uh, territory that they're working in. They kind of take the uh, kitschy cowbell disco of LCD sound system, the hypnotic yeah. propulsion of the Clash's Magnificent Seven, yeah. uh, the organized noise collage of the Adrian Blue era Talking Heads, and the manic, uncontainable energy of the Prodigy's Firestarter. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, fun, you, know you, you, it gives you an idea of the kind of uh, uh, pace, the kind of uh, groove, the kind of energy. And uh, just the kind of just plain old fun uh, that they're having uh, with this song. And it just it continues to stretch and grow and it and it gets more hypnotic and it gets more energetic and it gets more flavorful as it goes along. And it's kind of a it's 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 in a way it's a funny song because it accompanies uh, Smith. Uh, he has a clever riff in there on the trench coat, the history of the trench coat and its various cultural associations, you know, dapper on the town, scenester, upper crust aristocrat and stone cold fascist leader. Yeah. Uh, it's basically, so- basically it's, it's kind of a, a funny, weird, I'm not weird, but, but, but it's, it's a clever, I don't want to say meditation, but it's a clever commentary on the des- desperate male ego. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, in 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 a, in a way, like why why else would anybody wear a coat that goes all the way down to the floor and be inconvenient? It's to yeah, yeah it's it's basically the swinging dick, and there's yeah. a lot a lot of a lot of context for that which he kind of covers, and so it's it's very cheeky, uh, and 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 very fun, and and so you get this crazily leather jacket and spandex evoking musical arrangement, and it's a song about swanky and or menacing trench coats. 
And so <laughs> it's a really cute, hilarious juxtaposition that makes this song all the more delectable. Uh, strongly enthusiastic recommendation for this song, folks. Go seek it out. Uh, the video actually on is available on YouTube, and th- and that's a lot of fun too. Uh, just think yeah. about like how much you can get out of uh, you know a, a party with trench coats, and <laughs> uh, it it's it's a lot of fun. And so again, the trench coat museum. Uh, name of the band is Yard Act. Uh, they're one of the best uh, new bands in the world. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan, uh, indeed. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. So basically, the 20th century marks the point where American music basically took over the world. Uh, in the 20th century, you had you had the, the genres of blues, jazz, country music, which has its roots in English folk, but whatever, that mm-hmm. rhythm and blues which became eventually R&B, soul, rock and roll, funk. All of that came out in the 20th century, all came from America and all got adopted and adapted by different cultures throughout the world. And, and was they were all given their own unique uh, flavor and spin. Well, and, and, and let's not forget electronic music also, which really a lot of people would say, oh, Europe and all those all those countries. Oh, the United States no. had a lot to do Detroit. with electronic. Yeah, Detroit yeah. techno and Chicago house. But anyway, you could argue that the last American genre that really, really had a major worldwide lasting impact were two. Um, all that electronica that came out in the 1980s and, of course – hip-hop, arguably yes. the last truly important American genre. And Absolutely. Like, like, like we said, it, it unlike a lot of the other genres, it had different areas. You know, the blues, it wasn't just Mississippi. You had blues in Louisiana. You had blues in Alabama. You had blues in different parts. Rhythm and blues was scattered all throughout the South. Um, the northern city, the northern industrial cities, that's where the rhythm and blues came from and got put back down into the south. Country music spread through several states and had the origins in different states all along or near Appalachia. Hip-hop, no. Hip-hop, its origins is tied, is really in one part of one city, the Bronx, yes. New York. Yes, and uh, and and so and that's kind of the fascinating thing about it is it's it's a hyper local movement, and uh, well, I mean, let's just start off. I mean, we have four points to make about yes. what makes the birth of hip hop uh, so unique, and uh, the first one to really uh, to make a point of, and we kind of t- uh, we we've we've hinted at this. 
the first one is that it's a cultural invention as much as it is a musical one. Yeah. And uh, by that, uh, at this time, you know, think about it. Uh, what happens when no one's looking, really? And mm. there's, there's, you know, when we think of hip hop today, we think of it as very commoditized. You know, you've got, you know, you've got the formats, you've got singles, you've got videos, you've got, uh, you know, you've got influences, you've got, you know, things to aspire to. You know, uh, you're making a product for people to consume. Uh, at this time, at the time that hip hop starts to starts to gestate, there is no industry, there is no product, there there's not even radio outlet for it. Uh, there's no hey, you know, I want to be, you know, at least Elvis could be like, you know, hey, I want to be like uh, the old uh, the old blues singers, or I want to be like Big Mama Thornton. Uh, right. No, you know, there was there there wasn't even an aspiration, and so the culture. It, so it th this was not a uh, let's make music ambition racket. This was a uh, let, let's let's the party and the performance. It's let's yeah, have let's have right. a party and let's put on the performances. And uh, yeah. there's nothing really. So in that sense, there's nothing really linear about it. It just kind of comes from folks figuring out their way uh, through uh, where they were uh, in at that time and in that place uh, in history. And so there's yeah. really there was there was no blueprint for how to make a product out of vinyl records, sound systems, turntables, microphones, spray paint, and basically your body, you know, with with dance offs. I mean, yeah. it by its own nature, uh, hip hop is a very industrial creation. You know, it's mm -hmm. the it's the byproduct of stuff that was in your environment. It was just kind right. of uh, in a you way make, you make you make do with what you got. <laughs> yeah, and and when you ain't got much. Uh, and and what they had was music, yeah. And, and that's what, what I wanted to get that because you yes. mentioned the cultural part of it. Yes, uh, an important, if not maybe the most important aspect of this cultural notion of hip hop, it came from the desperation of impoverished inner city youth, and that desperation wasn't well, yeah, okay. They want to make money, of course, but that desperation, a desperation to be heard, a desperation for them to define themselves in a world yep. that wouldn't help them at all. Yeah. And absolutely. that's what hip hop came from that desperation. I am yeah. here. This is me. Look at me. I am something. I mean something. I yes. have something to give to the world. And uh, in a world that, you know, in an environment where these young people came from, where they were rejected, ostracized, marginalized, disenfranchised, and yeah, hip hop did come from that. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, it comes from a celebration, but it runs a little deeper than that. Let's get into that now. I mean, our, in terms of our second point of yeah. what makes this uh, so unique, and you alluded to it, that this was a hyper local, hyper terrestrial movement. And uh, Jeff Chang, who we uh, who we quoted in uh, the opener, a uh, brilliant uh, writer and author and historian, uh, has a book that he released in 2005. And, the, you know, one thing about history is it never goes out of style. Uh, mm -hmm. So so it is not a an aged out book. Uh, it's called Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Uh, and uh, strongly recommend that you buy that from your local record store or from thrift books or anywhere besides Amazon. Uh and he makes the point that there was a if you drew a seven mile circle from the center of the Bronx, 
that's where most of the hip hop innovation between like 1972, 73 and 1978 was happening uh, before. And, you know, it eventually started to make its way out to the other boroughs in the tri-state area, uh, you know, the other boroughs and, you know, out to Jersey and and things like that. But it was it was all part of this Bronx and really the southern half of the Bronx is where uh, all this was. And now, why is that important? Now, most people our age and even younger still, when you hear people talk about the Bronx or the South Bronx, uh, we're not talking about a very positive thing, are we, Art? No, I mean, this no. 1970s in New York, I mean, especially in these parts of yeah. New York, there was a lot of crime. There, 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 yeah. there was a lot There was a lot of, uh, um, oh. like I said, d- d- disenfranchisement as well. It, but there it, was a lot of crime and, and there were a lot of problems, drugs, yeah. gangs. You know? Absolutely. But but it, it ran deeper than that. It was a systemic creation. It's it's one of the most disgraceful things ever to, to happen. Basically, when we talk about uh, kind of uh, uh, gener- enforced poverty, like mm-hmm. enforced concentrated yeah. poverty, South Bronx is a euphemism for that. And that became and that was a product of uh, several decades of of uh happenings uh you had the construction of the cross bronx expressway uh the good Mm -hmm. old cbe which is one of the worst highways in the world uh (laughs) it uh, raised highways so basically what you do is you you put a raised highway and you rip it down the middle of the neighborhood well if you can move away from it you can if if not well now you're living in the shadows of a big ass highway and uh and so that that is something that happens there's the prod there's the uh, uh, discriminatory practice of redlining in terms of property values uh, going down, and that's pretty much related to uh, the industrialization of there. You had uh, widespread slumlording. So the idea is once the property uh, uh, once the property values start going down, now these folks are like, oh shoot, we're stuck, and you know here comes the crime, here comes the poverty, uh, and, and we're not going to take care of our buildings. Which by the mid seventies, uh, I made a reference to it at the beginning. The Bronx is burning. Yes, it was. Uh, it was an art, just terrible arson uh, mm-hmm. that went on. Like here's a stat from the, I got from the New York Post. At, at one point, the Bronx, seven different census tracts in the Bronx lost more than ninety seven percent of their buildings to fire and abandonment in the seventies, and forty four wow. tracts, uh, which is basically like uh, about a fourth or maybe a fifth of the Bronx lost more than 50% of its buildings. So mm-hmm. you have that for about a four-year period, you had severe gang warfare that went on in the late 60s and early 70s. And that's an important point because it was from the gang violence and the crime and all of this terrible stuff going on and this this competitive, like, you know, we, we, you know, if this is a place where everybody's abandoning, now it's, it's this sort of nihilistic... Uh, war tribalism war for control of territory of turf and uh, and so you had that until there was a uh there was a truce in the early 70s but from that you know obviously the crime didn't go anywhere the poverty didn't go anywhere uh there was there was heroin all over the place too and so and with all these burning buildings all these dilapidated buildings all that i mean it, it looked like a third world country if you've ever mm-hmm. seen pictures of, of you know, in, of parts of the Bronx, it, it was not a pleasant uh, place to be. And so if there was ever a neighborhood on this planet that was in need of transcendence, 
it was this tragic man-made shithole. And for <laughs> and for a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, Chang's sources make the point in, in uh, his book, and I've seen this uh, talked about elsewhere. It really truly was a matter of life or death, whether you attended these uh, these parties that, yeah. that sprung up in the Bronx or not. Uh, you know, if you were to, you know, you if you became a b-boy, if you became a DJ or an MC, or if you just were just hanging out, you you attended the party and were just cold rocking and just and just like hanging out, uh, just being associated with these parties. You know, if if you weren't doing that, maybe you were off getting high or 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 stealing or robbing or killing. Right. Uh, so it really was kind of a life or death thing, and so from that. Like you said, part of it was that self, uh, you know, having that self-confidence in the midst of all of this and, and saying, hey, I am somebody. But there's also that competitiveness. And that's the third point uh, that we're right. going to segue into, that hip hop was not really about the you know individual. I'm here to make a to perform a song. I'm here to write a song or artistic expression. It was more akin to, yeah, there was the artistic expression, but it was more akin to a competitive sport. Right. Uh, you know, you were really, it, it wasn't just general or, you know, media shaped rebellion. Uh, this was, it, there, there was nothing prefab uh, here. It was, uh, you know, it, think of it like cage fighting, <laughs> but with, <laughs> but with mics and turntables. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is where the, what we'll talk about here in a bit, that the four elements come in. You've got DJing. You know, who had the best records in their crates, who could bust out the best breaks, you know, who could hype up the crowd the most, who could keep them dancing, you know, who can keep them, you know, who can come out with the biggest surprises, those types of things, uh, you know, who could, you know, do the turntables the best, who could lead the party. You had emceeing, you know, who had uh, the freshest rhymes and who hyped the crowd the most and, you know, who could, you know, who could like really like lead the party and, you know, you had, you know, you had rapping, you ended up with emceeing crews, and this is where battle rapping would come from. Uh, Breakdancing, uh, who busted out the best moves? Uh, who was the most aggressive? I mean, yeah. you know, hip-hop dancing, it, it it didn't start off as backspinning. It was it was basically popping and locking and, like, just, just crazy kicking out of, of feet and hands, and it, and it also has uh, origins in, uh, in gang warfare too it was like kind of like ceremonial mm. dances before you got to the real fight mm. uh and then graffiti which was probably the most anarchic of the four <laughs> you know it was like <laughs> it was like le legitimately like we're claiming ownership of yeah. everything everything that we can put something on you know whether it's a bridge whether it's a wall whether it's your car whether it's your mom uh we're you know we're gonna do we're gonna do that and uh, here's a here's a great quote. And again, this comes from Jeff Chang's book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. He uh, interviews DJ Jazzy J and he talks about uh, where a lot of this uh, came from and how it was. He says, quote, instead of gangs, they started turning the, into little area crews where they would do a little bit of dirt. In every area, there would be a DJ crew or a breakdance crew. They would be like, OK, we are all about our music and we love our music. But you come to this area wrong, and we're all about kicking your ass. Competition <laughs> fueled the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to mention right. something about the competition. A, sure. lo a long time ago, back in 1996, uh, Nick Cave, the artist Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, um, was nominated by MTV for some for some video music award. I think it was Best Male Vocalist or something like that. I forgot what it was. But anyway, Nick Cave then wrote an open letter 
to MTV. Uh, first, thanking them for thinking of him and nominating him because, you know, he never sold records in America. But ultimately, he declined the nomination, refused to accept it. And his main reason for that was because he didn't like the idea of music or, or, or any kind of music putting being put in within the context of competition. Because he thought competition, in his words, was not something that his muse reacted to very well. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Well, yeah. and when, you, when you read a letter that like that, it kind of reeks of white privilege. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yes, it does. This is this is a white middle class, almost middle aged white people just not understanding and really. And it's a, it's a reason why a lot of older white people just don't get hip hop. Yeah. Oh, oh, all the they're all they're they're all bloating about them and gloating and bragging about themselves and this and that. And it's all no. misogynistic and blah blah. blah. They, they don't get where these people came from. They don't yeah. get where the where the culture came from, where the music came from, and the ethnicity of the people. Like these were poor black people when it started out in the nineteen yeah. seventies in the Bronx. Like like you said, the competition. That's all they had. Competition yeah. was their way they expressed it. They weren't like, okay, yeah, we're all in it together. We all love each other. How can no. you love each other when? How can you love each other when you're in poverty? Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, it's a you know, yeah, like you said, it's an outgrowth of survivalism, uh, really. And, and and in an odd way, that competition, that competitive spirit that was well within the music of hip hop, in a way, that was the brotherhood. That yeah. was what brought them together. Was yeah. the competition. Yeah, it, it wasn't was, lovey-dovey yeah. peace vibes, but yet lovey-dovey peace vibes still kind of emerged in their own way through the competition. And that's what a lot of, you know, white privilege idiots don't get. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, like you said, uh, and it, I should point out that when we're talking about black people, it, it, it's not exclusive to them. It's uh, there were in the Bronx at that point, there was an influx of uh, immigrants from the uh, the Caribbean. Sure. Uh, especially from Jamaica and Puerto Rico. And yeah, so, there, there were a lot of uh, an underrated number of Latino and Hispanic people living in New York City did contribute to early hip hop. Yeah, especially the B-Boys and the breakdancers uh, like the Rocksteady yeah. crew. I mean, uh, a lot of the early breakdancing crews were predominantly Puerto Rican, actually. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of was uh, was their uh, was their sort of corner of of, of the hip hop competitive uh, early universe. And so, again, this is all organic. It's just like, you know, just grab grab what's around. Uh, you know, you, you have your dad's uh, record collection and yeah. has like all that cool uh, James Brown and Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> more on that a little <laughs> bit later uh, and, and and stuff like that. And uh, you're just you're just turning. You know, you, you ain't got much but in, in a way, I guess it's a spiritual cousin of country music. If you think about it, you know, they're they're you know, uh, although I don't know. Here's the difference between country and hip hop that, you know, like Appalachian music. Yeah, they were poor white people, but they they were singing songs of lament and loss, whereas hip hop was like, you know, fuck lament and loss. You know, you know, we illin. You know, we yeah. chilling, you know, we, you know, yeah. we, you know, we, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. You know, we out here, we out here dominating and, you know, you know, we out here destroying motherfuckers. It, it basically, it, it's a refusal to stay negative. Yeah. You gotta make something positive out of this. Yeah. Right? They yeah, weren't absolutely. wallowing in their sadness. And there's nothing wrong with that. Great music yeah. has come 
people wallowing in sadness. But this no. is an al- this was an alternative, an alternative yeah. to wallowing in sadness. Yeah, and so it's like it's like one element block party and one element sport, right? Uh, is is really what hip hop is. And then uh, we just we kind of alluded at it, and um, it's it's wonderful that you quoted Nick Cave because this makes my 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 th- this last point for for us very well. White people cannot claim any part of hip hop's invention at all. Mm. Uh, now, in the rock narrative, and uh, you, folks will remember, late last year we did a two part series on uh, the first golden age of rock, as we call it, which is the period between uh, fifty four and fifty nine, is what we defined it as. Correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, what we split that into two episodes, and and basically, you know, uh, between us, uh, and kind of half jokingly, we 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 called the one the uh, the the black episode and the other the white episode. Uh, which, you know, and the white episode is mostly about appropriating what the what the black forerunners of rock and roll had done pre- previous to them. However, there was one element of rock and roll's formation that was definitely very white, and that was uh, Appalachian folk and the Western swing and country music right. of, of Texas, especially the West Texas uh, uh, bunch. And so in Tennessee. And and those areas, you had that very rural white music that even Chuck Berry, <laughs> you know, uh, so but in this case, white people have no claim on hip hop's origins at all. And, and, not, and not only that, they can barely claim to have anything to do with its breakout either. Now, granted, you know, there you needed you needed white owned labels with some money to to help. But think about it. The first hip hop single of any note, uh, the Sugar Hill Gang's "Rappers Delight," which is the first recorded uh, and and widely released single, uh, that was uh, put out by a a, now, a a small, tiny label owned by a black woman. Mm. And then from there, uh, you know, you get uh, a few years later, you you with in the MTV era. You get the breakout of Run DMC and LL Cool J. Well, who's mostly responsible for that? Russell Simmons. Mm. So uh, along with uh, along with Rick Rubin. So so like, like Rick Rubin is the closest thing that a white person can say that, yeah, I had something to do with hip hop. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but but, so, but Rick Rubin came like a well after the yeah. parameters of hip hop were established. Oh, well, 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 well after uh, he just was uh, uh, he, he just was brought in to help uh, produce some of the music. And uh, and help form uh, Def Jam with uh, with Russell, but you know Russell was the one with he was the man with the hustle and the talent, and so this is a very uniquely black American creation uh, with black predecessors setting the musical tone, you know. And by that, what I mean is that uh, you know the original source of inspiration was funk and soul breaks. Or you know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, you know, uh, even the Temptations, uh, you know, uh, in in some ways. But you're talking like James Brown and and mm-hmm. some of those other uh, artists uh, as well. And so it's a um, it's it's a black uh, art form, a black creation that is uh, almost wholly motivated by uh, black, uh, you know, the music uh, from black artists that emitted from vinyl records, right. Exactly. And uh, well, Chris, you mentioned about uh, these four uh, points. Let's now go into 
those four elements from the third point that you mentioned. And we're going to explore those elements. You mentioned DJing, emceeing, breakdancing, graffiti, the four elements uh, of hip hop culture. Really, yes. more than anything else, yeah, not just absolutely. the music, but the culture. We're talking the culture. about the culture, yeah. With the, right. and and obviously, you know, breakdancing and and graffiti and, and even DJing. Three of these four have lost their steam over the years, uh, sure. as it's become more of an industry and it's become you know so like a, you know basically the main uh, product of the labels these days. But uh, this these were the and and where that uh, language comes from. Uh, so, like I said, there was the hip hop culture. It, it stems from not just the the overwhelming poverty, but it, it comes out of the gang uh, warfare mm. that happened in the in the very early right. 70s before a truce. And so now you, know, you still have some of that that same violence. And, you know, it's, it's not that that goes away. And so there was this effort to take that tribal warfare mindset and flip it and make it a positive thing. And so you could still be tribal and still be primal but right. do it in a positive way. And so, uh, so this idea, and it really comes from the mighty, mighty Zulu nation, the, you know, the, the universal Zulu nation, which is uh, Africa Bambada's uh, creation. So in other words, what are the fire, earth, water, and air of hip hop? And so <laughs> that's sort of where the, the elements thing comes from. And so, uh, as Arturo mentioned, we'll go through them uh, individually and I'll allow you to make some comments here, Arturo. Uh, yeah. DJ DJing right now. Now, have you ever wondered out there, folks and Arturo, like some of the seminal acts of late 80s, uh, you know, sort of that golden age of the, the that old school hip hop you ever wonder why some of these groups are Eric B and Rakim and not Rakim and Eric B or why yeah. it's DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince and not the Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. Because the DJ was the king. Uh, the DJ was he he was the man with the music. He was he was the one that was hype, you know, that was keeping the crowd on its toes. He was the he was the master of the turntables. He was, you know, he was the the, the freshest guy in the in the yard. Without, you know, without the DJ, you didn't have the party. So that's where the power was. Uh and really within DJing, there's a couple of things. One, there is the technique. Uh and the, the big innovation there was what is known as the breaks. And, yeah. uh, you know, this is something that a lot of younger folks probably don't picture. This is this is what makes us realize art that we're in our 40s now. Yeah. That yeah. by the breaks, what it is, is you have a DJ and he's got two turntables. And what what it is, is you've got the same, you know, that sort of think of like james brown's give it up and turn it loose or the the incredible bongo bands apache uh, which are two of the more uh, popular breaks or sample uh, uh sections uh, uh of that are were used back then and even still now especially apache but what you do is you have one turntable where you have it queued up five seconds before you have it on the other one and so you play it on one turntable and you have that five second, like with that break there, and then you switch to the other one and you queue it up and you repeat it. And while the second turntable is playing, you're, you're backing up the first one to the start of the break 
And so the second one starts, now you're back to the first, you queue up the second one again. And so it just over and over and over. So in other words, the groove, the the break, the groove never stops. And, and so it, it also explains why a lot of these early, uh, the early hip hop songs up to 79, 80, a lot of those singles were really long singles. They were like seven, eight, some of them even nine minutes long, because the whole point of it was to keep people dancing, keep yeah. people on the dance floor, keep keep the party going for as long as possible. Right. And and the texture was in the break. And it was it was the break that kept people hyped. It, it, it was kind of the hypnosis. It was like, yeah. you know, you, you know, th this was an innovation that like, you know, a lot of these early hip hop parties, they weren't all about the breaks. I mean, this was something that uh, one of our we'll be talking about him a little bit later. Cool Herc is is credited with with coming up with. But uh, it, it's something that came out. Of, again, it was that creative spirit. How, how can we like jazz up the party? How can I have my own signature? How can I stand out? And, you know, from that, uh, you you get that. And then eventually you get a guy like Grandmaster Flash who takes the concept of the breaks and is such a nerd that he is able to uh, manipulate mixers and turntables to do that and to get it precise as hell. And not right. only that, but also put some flair in there, uh, there too, you know, like Grand Wizard Theodore and, and him coming up with scratching yeah. and, and doing those types of things. And so, uh, yeah, the DJ, the DJ was the king. Uh, and but, what, what happened, I think like in, in starting in the, I would say the 1990s, the importance of the DJ got replaced by the importance of the producer. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. The the producer these days is is akin to the DJs uh, back then, and so so back then it was DJ Jazzy J, or you know it was DJ Jones, or it was Cool Herc, or uh, in the 80s Red Alert. Uh, you would have that now. It's uh, you know like at least from. Uh, at least 20 years ago, the Neptunes and Timbaland and uh, Kanye West. Uh, and then these days, you know, you got the dude that uh, the, uh, produces Migos and you've got mm. uh, you've got a few others, uh, uh, young cats like JPEG Mafia. And so, you know, you get these pro uh, these producers, they're they're kind of the new DJs. But th it there's a difference, though. Uh, back then, the MC was in service of the DJ. Now the producer is in service of the MC. Yeah. And Which that's leads the, us to MCing, the second yes. element. Yeah, that leads us to MCing. And so the DJ rocked the party, but the MC eventually led it. And, uh, you know, some of this comes out of, uh, you know, you needed somebody to kind of lead and to be the somebody that would be the hype man. Because in a lot of cases, the DJ is like, oh, he's, he's, you know, he, he's like, kind of a big nerd that's like you know like spinning records there's only so much entertainment value you can get from that so sometimes you need help and so mm. yes an mc mc the party and so a lot of the original MCing, it was more akin to dance hall toasting from uh from uh, reggae and from jamaica where mm. you know you'd have the kind of the you know the chants and yeah. the uh just kind of the you know call and response and getting people uh getting people hyped up and just, you know, just more of, of that. But gradually over time, what happened was, is that, you know, as the DJs and as these parties got bigger, there was more of a need for a show. And right. so, so the MCs, and that's where the rapping, that's where the rapping came in. That's where the rapping came in. And, and, and that, again, that comes with the competitive spirit that you, you, you know, you have to see that some of these guys back then are saying, well, there's gotta be more we can do with this. And so, 
uh, from that comes comes the boasting from that comes the uh some of the the early poetics from some of that comes the like the battle rapping about why my crew is fresher than yours yeah <laughs> uh, and, and or you know and or or like why 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 my turf is better than your turf yeah. and or you know and did or even you know, telling stories, which, you know, happened a little bit at, at that point too. you know, the Sugar Hill Gang song Rapper's Delight, you know, has, has got some of that in it. But, you know, the silly thing about getting the shits that's, you know, in the in the original, uh, the original yeah. version uh, or the, the the long version. So and so it, it, it emerges from that. And so the MCs originally were there to just kind of like lead the party. The DJ was still the king. And it grew into a need for the show. And from that, it kind of like, you know, Frankenstein got a heart and a brain, so to speak, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you you just keep growing. Right. And speaking of growing physically, the physical aspect of hip hop, the third element, break dancing. Yeah. Otherwise, no, or b-boying in the, in the (laughs) part, in the parlance back then. I mean, what, I mean, what the hell's a party without dancing? And so, you know, out of those funk breaks comes that kind of clipped uh, rapid movements of breakdancing, you know, especially, you know, popping and locking. And a lot of, you know, when we think of breakdancing now, a lot of us think of the guys doing backspins and spinning on their heads and doing a lot of the stuff where they're kind of on the ground. Well, no, but early hip hop dancing was was pretty much vertical, but it was like a lot of like swinging, like aggressive movements of the feet or the hands. And just sort of, you know, like just body movements, kind of like like weird contortion and uh, and those types of things. And again, it, it really comes out of there were uh, in, in gang times. It was there were dances that would come from that or from Africa, too. Yeah, it was it was a sort of, you know, kind of tribal one upsmanship. And sometimes it was the ceremonial uh, one upsmanship before they started killing each other. <laughs> or they or they started or they started hitting each other with spears uh yeah. but and so it kind of comes from uh from that uh tradition but it also was a little bit more artistic than that because you know you would get like real dancing uh and right. it, and and a lot of that and so uh miming was an influence on this and and this is a a, a good chance to tell a story when i was out in uh uh, Phoenix, uh, working for the Phoenix New Times, uh, the, I uh, edited a story out there that uh, apparently, you know, there was a like, breakdancing was there were local breakdancing and there was a local little breakdancing scene. Well, uh, you know, word on the ground from my reporter was that uh, the old mime duo and this is old school, like hell, people our age probably don't remember these guys too much, but uh, Shields and Yarnell. Ever heard of Shields and Yarnell, Arthur? No, I have not. Well, there you go. That's how obscure this is. So this was a uh, husband and wife. I believe they were husband and wife. Uh, mime duo that used to show <laughs> that used to show up on the Sonny and Cher hour all the time uh, doing their bits. And, you know, like miming, there's a lot of those sort of like exaggerated right. uh, movements of arms and kind of, you know, leaning over and, you know, kind of swinging, you know, kind of swinging the arm type type of thing well it turns out uh my reporter the guy who was working for me jimmy mcgahern jimmy if you're listening hello uh found out from one of the break break dancers that shields and yarnell was an influence in what they were doing mm. and he did the research and it turns out yes shields and yarnell were actually an influence on some of what the popping and locking 
uh, you know, came from. And then it was really cool because w- what it, it turns out that Shields, who was the, uh, I think it was Shields, who was the the male. And if I get that wrong, I'm, I apologize, but I think it was Shields. It was the male half of that of that duo uh, lived up in Sedona, which is two hours north of Phoenix. And so through through some, uh, you know, some clever approaches, uh, we were able to get uh, uh, the old mime shields together with the kids to to break dance together. And so so (laughs) that just kind of shows you the transcendence of it. But anyway. Uh, I, th- I think it's also important to notice that this element of hip hop, the break dancing, it was the first element, I think, that actually made a serious impression on mainstream white America. Yeah. Because look at all the Hollywood movies that came out of that. Breaking. Yeah. I, yeah Breaking yeah. 2, Electric Boogaloo. What was Beat the Street. other one? Beat, Beat Street. Street. That was the other one. Crush, crush Groove. Well, the yeah. crush, crush Groove is more of a more of a rapping uh, one, though. So yeah, no, you're right, and 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 that actually sets up a, a next point. So yes, uh, in terms of uh, it was the break dancing that was sort of a positive representation of hip hop culture, and so it wasn't. Well, that beatboxing was was uh, people right. were obsessed with beatboxing too, which is another. Uh, that was kind of the MC, the MC as DJ. That yeah. was the whole. That was the whole point of of beatboxing. Uh, was just a really, really clever. Uh, again, another one. He's like creative. When there's no rules, when nobody's watching, and there's no rules, uh, yeah. you know, everything's on the table. Uh, yeah. So there was a positive representation to it. And again, it, it bears repeating. This was sort of the uh, the diversity, uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, and so not just of of uh, you know folks that you know they weren't necessarily you know old you know affiliated with the gangs or anything like that but you're talking to like puerto rican and more caribbean uh uh, uh dancers uh and so th- there was a more diverse element uh to it to it there so break dancing was the positive thing that first got into white mainstream uh culture what what do you think the negative thing was that real that that probably had more of a pronounced effect on white america I don't think it's negative at all. I think there's some beautiful, great graffiti art out there. But yes. at the time, graffiti had a very negative connotation attached. Absolutely. Graffiti, Absolutely. The fourth, the fourth element of hip hop culture. Gra- graffiti to me is the most fascinating uh, of the four elements because it was literally the one that had no boundaries and it mm-hmm. had that had no rules and it had no uh it it trans you know basically you know, you could represent for your turf because you remember a lot of these were neighborhood crews that were doing right. this uh but graffiti artists were kind of like you know they were truly anarchists and it was like uh it was almost like taking back property from the white uh, taking back property from whitey and <laughs> yeah. and so you know we we we, we tagged uh we we tag subway cars we tag uh uh, bridges we tag tunnels we tag uh, uh blank walls in in projects we uh you know we we tag guardrails <laughs> you know you know yeah. or like highway bridges and you know all this kind of stuff and so it, there was just a, a real and it, it brought like an art like you said an artistic flavor to it and it, it, it was actually the graffiti because you remember fab five freddie who, who uh fred braithwaite uh, he uh, hosted Yo MTV Raps, but he is a he was a graffiti artist, and it was the graffiti artists that first got embraced by you know the the 
the white uh, the white intelligentsia down in the village. Yeah, name checked by Deborah Harry of Blondie yeah. in in the song Rapture. Yeah, absolutely, and also the Upper East, uh, you know, the upper crust Upper East folks, uh, and and that scene, uh, they 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 embraced the graffiti artists first. They were the first that actually got the sort of hey, you know, this is this is credible, and from there it was the graffiti artists that, in some ways, and, and obviously Fred Braithwaite, Fat Five Freddy, is a, and indicative of this. It was the graffiti artists that vouched for the artistry of everything else. Right. Uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so that's kind of where it starts. But that doesn't really come until like, uh, well, certainly after uh, 79 and with the Sugar Hill Gang, but it doesn't really start to come until about 81, 82, that mm. you start to get that transition. And where oh, yeah. It's so and, but, and it migrates back, back, back. Check this out. Back in 1981, mm-hmm. The Clash, the punk rock band, uh, they were uh, on what was it? Is it what's the guy Snyder? John, uh, uh, the, the talk show host, the American talk show host. Oh, Tom Snyder. Tom Snyder. They were on Tom Snyder's show. And this was back in 1981. And the clash is like the, the peak of their popularity. And they were performing their standalone single. This is Radio Clash. And while they were performing, they had some graffiti artists because they, they were because this, this was filmed in New York. While they were performing, they had some graffiti artists in the back behind the drummer. Oh, that's cool. Doing doing their graffiti stuff while the Clash were playing. So that was a, another way how the Clash cleverly aligned themselves with a hip new style of hip hop. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and the, and we we said before that there was a negative connotation that, that like that it was looked on negatively because let's 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 face it, graffiti by its very nature it was it was an act. It was it was the only act of actual true against the law rebellion in all right. of hip hop. Yeah. And so you know, a, a one one person's beautiful art is another person's vandalism. And, <laughs> yeah. And I suppose, yeah. and and you know, think about it. It, it it really is kind of a claim for ownership of like, oh, okay, uh, I'm going to own that by by tagging it with my graffiti, mm-hmm. uh, or yeah. you know, I'm going to own that now. And it's like, oh, you're not going to own that. We're we're going to bury you. And so you know, you're you're a you're a thug. You're a criminal. You're a hood. You know, you're mm-hmm. you know all that. And yeah. so you know, this was just, and not only that, but it was an eyesore too. That you know, I mean, you know, you're talking about property owners. Uh, yeah. It. it essentially what happened was graffiti caught on so well that it wasn't just contained to the South Bronx or the yeah. West Bronx. I mean, you know, you end up with like fucking Grand Central Station uh, you know, <laughs> with, uh, with with graffiti. And so it's it's like when when they start bombing and they start tagging places that actually have real property value. <laughs> now, now, all of a sudden, that's when they're criminals. Uh, so. But yeah. And you did have it. And so you would have these parties. Now, take those four elements and now you have like a big uh, uh, like courtyard party at these at these places. And and think about it. You've got not just one DJ, but you would have like huge block parties where you have like DJs competing with each other. And generally speaking, you know, the cool Herc thing, the, the guy with the best sound system would win because he would just right. overwhelm everybody else. You couldn't hear everybody else. So you had that. You had uh, the MCs going and getting all the crowd hyped. You got the break dancing and you've got. The, the artists you know making the graffiti and so you've got all of this stuff going on and a lot of this stuff like literally you've never seen before you've never heard before nobody's ever attempted before and they're inventing stuff on the fly and the thing about it was it was all improv i mean there was no 
there was no standard of this is what people are expecting when you come to this show this is what you must provide them it wasn't like it wasn't like a rock show or like nirvana back in 1992 hey place smells like teen spirit yeah it it, it wasn't all that so there were really like legitimately no expectations and so i can just imagine uh being uh a, a resident of the south bronx in like 1975 and going to one of these parties, like, you know, uh, Africa Bambata was kind of the king of the Bronx River projects and like, right. you know, going to a party in the Bronx River projects uh, and like literally like like not knowing what you're going to see that night or like what Bambata is going to pull out of his bag of tricks as far as what he was, you know, what records he was going to play or uh, like you didn't know what moves you were going to see from the B-Boys or, you know, and just. It, it just it 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 all was being formed on the fly, and so you know from that you get a lot of of, of myths. You know we said in the beginning of the episode that uh, uh, that this party that Cool Herc threw for the first time with his sound system on August eleventh, nineteen seventy three. That that people want to make this as the date that hip hop was invented, and so yeah. you know so hip hop turns fifty. And I'm like bullshit. It it just was it was a very dynamic gradual uh just sort of it and it just kind of it just kind of formed and when nobody's chronicling it then you know and there's no rules now just everything just it it all just comes together organically and beautifully and there's not a whole lot of art forms you, you can say that about on this episode we talked about the birth of hip-hop that, of course, took place in our beloved New York City. For the next episode, yours truly curmudgeons will remain in the Big Apple, but the focus will go back to our beloved rock music. Many songs over the many, many years have been written about New York City, but we're not paying attention to Frank Sinatra, Billie Holiday, or any jazz or big band artists. And we're avoiding hip-hop for this one, not only because we just did an episode on hip-hop, but because we can do an entire five-episode series on hip-hop songs just about New York. No, we're focusing on rock, R&B, soul, and funk, and artists such as... Uh-uh, nope, we're not giving you any hints on this promo. Suffice it to say, yours truly curmudgeons will give you the definitive list of the greatest songs of the rock era ever written about New York City. Join us next time for the 20 most quintessentially New York City rock songs ever. All right, well, so far when talking about the birth of hip hop, we've been talking about it on a macro level. You know, like I said, the four elements, you know, DJing, MCing, breakdancing, graffiti, the four points of hip hop and culturally and what it meant, why it became what it became. Um, now let's go to a micro level because there were individual human beings <laughs> who were part of this whole thing. And there were people, these were flesh and blood breathing human beings who did this and created this. And when it comes to hip hop and the music, there are four individuals in particular who really need to be talked about. The first person, Chris, and you mentioned him already, Cool Herc. Yes, Cool Herc. Uh, if anybody can be said to say 
Okay, well, who who uh, was the creator of the music of hip hop? If anybody could ha- lay claim to that, it would be Cool Herc. So uh, here here is Herc's story. Uh, Herc is uh, born Clive Campbell. He is a was a Jamaican immigrant. Uh, he actually, according to Can't Stop Won't Stop, he actually lived in the same uh, building in Trenchtown that Marley grew up in for a stretch. Mm. So mm. Yeah, go figure. Uh, his family moves when uh, when Clive is young. Uh, the name Cool Hurt comes from the fact that he was a big, huge uh, jack motherfucker who excelled athletically, and you know, hence he was Hercules. Yeah, uh, and he caught on to uh, an interest in DJing and uh, and playing music early, uh, and uh, he came from a very musical household. I mean, in terms of what they had, you know, the big Temptations fans or uh, lots of James Brown. And lots of Aretha Franklin, a lot of uh, early uh, black music uh, or R&B. And so it was a very musical household. And uh, what what happens is that, uh, you know, he's trying to, you know, his dad had a sound system that Herc really, 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 truly wanted to use at some point. But his dad wouldn't let him because he didn't trust him with it because it was it was a (laughs) it was a super jacked up system. Well, (laughs) what happened was, is that Herc without you know, without permissions, I guess he starts futzing around with some of the wires in this, uh, in this sound system. And he gets it to the point where he gets it super duper, super duper souped up. And (laughs) it's like, Oh, it's like dad. Hey, I figured this out. So, you know, now that I've got this to a point where I can actually like host a part, like, like a big party with it, will you let me do it? And he's like, well, okay. And so therefore with the help of his sister, uh, he promotes this party uh, at a uh, his apartment building, and he was actually in the West Bronx. It's a li- little little west of where the real bad stuff was happening, but you know, still mm-hmm. wasn't great. Uh, on Sedgwick Avenue in in the Bronx, in the rec room of this apartment building, uh, here comes Herc uh, blasting uh, his sound system. And uh, at that point, he wasn't doing the breaks; it was just basically a party, but. It was folks getting together and he stood out because, again, the the, the man with it, it was the same thing in Jamaica. The man with the power is the man that people gravitate towards. And right. cool, and cool Herc had had the power and he had presence. He was literally a big guy. <laughs> yeah. And he, he was this big, awesome, like like literally like like he had like Hulk Hogan biceps. I mean, he was a big dude. And so so he starts to, you know, with his sound system, he starts to get more parties. He starts to get out there. Uh, he's, you know, sharing more of his music that he loves. And then at some point he comes up with this concept. We talked about it earlier with the breaks. He called it the merry-go-round, mm. which was, uh, which again was that was the two turntables with the, with the same, uh, part of a, uh, of, of, of a track, uh, isolated at different intervals. So you could essentially repeat it, uh, nonstop. And so from there, the legend of Herc's parties grew and and really, you know, people gravitated towards him because of his presence and charisma, because of the music, because of the breaks, because of the noise. And it was it was the place to be where where Herc's parties. And so, uh, you know, and so he he never broke out of the Bronx. Essentially, when he was he was about I think he was like 18 or something like that uh, when he first started, maybe even a little younger. 
and he's playing these parties and you know you're playing for like kids it's it's like basically mm-hmm. all ages it's you know families and and right. and all of that and so you know at at some point maybe you get a uh, a desire to start playing for adults you know the yeah. the ki- the kids that you were playing for your peers well, they're now adults. Well, that, now they're not going to be hanging out at all ages cl- uh, parties. They, they want to be hanging out at clubs. Well, yeah. Herc, you know, Herc tried to 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 go up uh, uh, in rank, and at one point he ended up getting mugged and stabbed and uh, uh, in, injured injured pretty badly. And so uh, he never really made it that far as far as his ambitions out there. And then, of course, uh, seventy nine happens, and a lot of those a lot of those folks in that early scene got left behind, and and Herc was one of them. However, why, why, you know, why did they get left behind? They just they just you know they weren't good enough. They they weren't good enough beyond their initial success. Or no, I I think what it was was it was just you know Herc you know it it was just the uh, how much bigger and better could it get? I mean, it, it, again, you know, according to the book and according to narratives I've read, that things were starting to peter out in like 1978 in general in the Bronx. And a lot of the, a lot of the parties and a lot of the music was starting to slowly edge out of the Bronx and more Where, towards to Brooklyn. Yeah. To like Brooklyn and to Queens and even into New Jersey. Wow. Uh, and so it was petering out a little bit and, and then Herc, you know, because of the injury that he had and because it was just, you know, there was a, a little bit of a, uh, little bit of a uh, a groove of time in between when it started to phase out and when the sugar hill gang comes he never uh, he never proceeded whereas you know bambata and and others you know they were able to get record deals and they became more famous you know her sort of got left behind but it was kind of a combination of circumstance and his own uh, volition now granted over the years uh, he's been picked up and you know he is seen as he's basically like uh, one of the godfathers of of hip hop, and sure it, he's gotten his flowers. Let's just put it that way. And he's gotten yeah. high profile gigs. Uh, he still performs now on sort of you know like nostalgia circuit uh, sure. type type of gigs, and uh, just a really a really engaging. When you see interviews, he's a really engaging guy. He's now sixty eight years old. And, uh, and just, was just a really bright, uh, performer and the fact that he could come up with the the breaks and sustain them for that Mm. long, just, just coming up with that alone. He's the man who invented the sample. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially, essentially that's what he did. Uh, he, he, he essentially created the live sample. And so, uh, so cool Herc forever and a day, uh, big ups. All right. The second guy on this are probably they're, they're men. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The second person. They are men. They are men. The second person uh, of the four, like really important forefathers of hip hop, and he's still alive as well. Africa Bambata. Yes. Now, uh, I'm sure that most people listening to us have heard of Africa Bambata, and you will associate him with the series of great singles that he was associated with and helped produce in the early 80s planet rock renegades of funk looking for planet, the perfect- planet rock sampling Kraftwerk, trans europe express yes ab- absolutely uh, and then uh, looking for the perfect beat which is my favorite of those singles mm-hmm. uh just and you know where he was working with arthur baker uh it was a british uh producer most more uh, most famously associated with new order so that's right. what y'all know him from. But uh, his his true importance comes before any of that happens. 
And so here's uh, Mr. Bambata's story. Uh, real name, Lance Taylor. Nobody knew that for years. He, he was kind of a man <laughs> of mystery. A lot of people thought it might be Kevin Donovan, but I think that they got that wrong because they, they looked at his sheet and it was like maybe like the sound guy or something instead of him. It's like, <laughs> and they, they, they got that wrong. Uh, but he kind of intentionally was vague about his history and, and, and played up to mythology. And so a lot of the language and a lot of the, you know, the mythology and a lot of the tribalism and a lot of the sort of the, the quirky uh, nature of like the very old school hip hop comes from, uh, from, from Bambada. Again, the elements uh, really starts uh, with Bambada and the mighty Zulu nation. Uh, so, uh, he uh, grew up in uh, the southeast Bronx, the southeast corner of the Bronx, along the Bronx River. He was uh, a housing project called the Bronx River Projects. And uh, one thing that makes him stand out among this crowd is he was an actual gangster. Yeah. Uh, he uh, before he uh, embarked in his uh, escapades as a musician and as a as a DJ, uh, he was an actual warlord where, for a gang called the Black Spades. And uh, as a warlord, he was uh, he basically he was the guy who was tasked with expanding uh, the Black Spades turf. Wow. And so which means you have to be the political guy to come in and form alliances. And so you can you can expand that turf and, and so you can kind of uh, uh, spread your dominance. And so it's it's, it's kind of a diplomatic uh, 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 position, but he was doing it for the purposes of expanding the rackets and expanding the violence and the drugs and the crime. Uh, mm -hmm. at that point. Uh, and he, you know, he said he was a big deal in the spades. Well, what happens is, is uh, at a certain point, and this is, he, he's in high school when this, ha this is happening. He was really young. Well, at some point in high school, I think it was, like he's a senior in high school. There was an essay contest that his school was doing. Cause he, he bust into a, 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 a whiter school in the Bronx and they had an essay contest and the winner of the essay contest would be get a, a, a paid trip to Africa. <laughs> and so he won the essay contest and he was able to go experience Africa firsthand and it blew him away. And he came back from that saying that we're going to now get away from this negative energy and we're going to turn it into this sort of building positive and building uh, things on uh, black empowerment. In other words, get out of crime. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so take take that same tribalism and turn it into something positive. And so the idea is, you know, we're not we're not slinging drugs. We're not robbing. We're not uh, we're not getting into uh, uh, knife fights or those. No. Now we're DJing. Now we're emceeing. Now we're 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 spreading positivity in the community. We're 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 offering knowledge. We're you know, we're policing our own. And and so and from that, you know, comes the universal Zulu nation. And there was a lot of eclecticism to that uh, in terms of the the sort of the shamanistic dress that uh, that Bambada right. is known for uh, the, uh, the the emblems that they wore, which, you know, some of those came from voodoo and, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of like more New Orleans uh, right. type of things. And, uh, you know, their uh, their slogan was peace, love, unity and having fun. And they were an extremely prolific mix of DJs, B-boys, graffiti artists, and MCs. Uh, at some point, starting in about 75, you couldn't go to a party in the Bronx that wasn't uh, in some ways overwhelmed by Zulu Nation reps. <laughs> you know, Here's you know, the one they, thing. You mentioned peace, love, unity, having fun. Later in the 1980s, James Brown would record a single with Africa yeah. Bombada called yep. 
peace, love, unity, and having fun. Yep. Well, that was the chorus. It was called Unity. <laughs> oh, Unity. Uh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. And it, 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 yeah, it was funny uh, that he got that. So, uh, so that was his contribution. Now, uh, it was really he took it to the extremes in terms of how he built the Zulu Nation, and and it really was. It was based on just sort of this African wisdom and. Uh, and you know, sort just sort of being the benevolent, uh, you know, the benevolent leader of yeah. the tri- of the tribe. And uh, let me, uh, you know, let me read uh, uh, this. So they had a thing that one of the the things that a lot of literature came from the Zulu Nation, and they had this thing that they called Infinity Lessons. Hmm. And uh, and Infinity Lessons were the these sort of these uh, these. Uh, precepts, these uh, these decrees, these uh, ways of living, and this this uh, and it really kind of got into their worldview of how we can uh, combine Afrocentrism with our community uh, here in the Bronx. Now, here's uh, quoting from the original uh, uh, Infinity Lessons uh, document, which actually uh, th- this is available. Uh, uh, the ZuluNation.com. The the Zulu Nation is still in existence uh, today, and so uh, so this is this is pretty wild, but in some ways it's incredible. Quote: As the circle expands, our collective consciousness grows, bringing us to ever higher realizations of divinity. As we are individually aligned with our true nature, the whole of humanity is strengthened. By focusing on our own development, you will serve all of humanity. At different times in history, certain fully realized beings have come to teach us by revealing different parts of the plan for the development of humanity as a whole. These teachings have all focused on the universal truths and have taught about the power of love. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Multiplied and exponential growth as more and more of us discover the truth inside. The new world is inside you. Zulu kings bring forth the vision that we may all exist in harmony. We celebrate our divine nature and appreciate it. Our individual contributions to the good of the group. This is the true nature of the age of Aquarius. Through coming together with music and dance, we unite. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds better already than most of like the self-help, positive thinking guru con artists that are out there. Yeah, I was I was going to say, although, you know, said he got a career on this. And so uh, uh, eventually, you know, as he got away from uh, his time in the mainstream, which we talked about with those singles, uh, the the Zulu Nation became like a movement was you know popular on college campuses and those types of things. He, He came to add a fifth element, which was knowledge. So it mm. was not just the DJing yeah. and the MCing, the b-boying and the graffiti. Now it was knowledge, and so right. uh, they 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 made something meaningful out of it. That you know the the idea you know and Bambada is important because if you can if anybody can claim to be the inventor of the music, it's cool Herc. If anybody can claim to be the inventor of the culture and the importance that we put on it, and you know the the the, the positivity the, the positive focused competition. Right. You know, that like you like you talked about before, it's Bambata. Right. Now, uh, as a very sad postscript, by the way. Yeah, as I was about to say, starting seven years ago, we started uh hearing of or reading about allegations uh by not just one or two, but several men who uh mentioned like when they were young 
when they were young boys, how Bombada sexually molested them. And apparently it wasn't just one or two kids. Like he, it was pretty widespread. Yeah. And eventually this comes out. And so uh, long story short, Bambata is no longer uh, in the, the Zulu nation. He They've uh, disassociated uh, themselves with him. I, I understand that somebody uh, I, I read that there was a lawsuit filed against him in 2021 from somebody claiming mm. sexual abuse. Wow. So uh, so, you know, it's. You know, like we said in our James Brown episodes, you know, uh, love the art, not so much the artist uh, once in a yeah. while. Yeah. You never know. These people have a dark side. But uh, but man, a you lot know, of artists. I mean, honestly, if we start canceling artists for having their dark side. We have no we'll have no music left. Yeah, we'll have no artists. I mean, it's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a scary thought. Uh, but that's a discussion for another day, too. But uh, needless to say, Bambada's influence on on hip hop culture and, and the development of early hip hop. Oh, and uh, should mention, he was a kick ass DJ, too. Uh, he he was the one that kind of uh, revolutionized the idea of programming by the DJ. So it wasn't just like the same five or six breaks like he would whip out Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> <laughs> or like we're an American band or he would yeah. uh, he would play like uh, Britpop. Or like, you know, kind of like uh, British Invasion music or he would play disco or, you know, he would, you know, and so he he kind of was known for his crates more than most of the DJs. And so a lot of fun, a lot of unpredictability and a lot of just sort of expression through his his vinyl. And right. so that that was sort of his trademark. And so, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, that brings us to the third uh, forefather, important forefather, an individual. Um, yeah. Speaking of DJs, this yeah. guy, <laughs> Grandmaster Flash, this dude, yes. this dude was the virtuoso. Yes, absolutely. So if if uh, those two guys were innovators as DJs, or excuse me, if those guys were inventors as DJs, then the innovator of all innovators was Grandmaster Flash. Uh, born Joseph uh, Sadler, he was a Barbadian immigrant. Mm. Uh, who grew up in the Bronx and uh, he was one of these, he was a, from early on, he was a big techie nerd. He was a, he was like a, a mad scientist type that he was, he was the kind of kid that would want to take the CB radios and take, take them apart. So this just so he can put them back together again and figure yeah. out how to, how to soup things up and make things better or, 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 you know, make tweaks. And he was, he was the experimenter. He was the, uh, you know, he was the geek. And so, yeah. you know, if most of the people at the parties were like smoking spliffs and, yeah. you know, and, and and drinking 40s and uh, just, you know, getting their party on, he was sitting there studying what Herc was doing. And he was studying like, you know, OK, his breaks. So what's he doing? So how can I do better breaks? Or And so, you know, he would do things like, you know, he manipulated the needles, he manipulated the mixers, you know, he, uh, you know, in terms of what the sound system would do. And, you know, he he was one of these guys that uh, uh, if he were a vinyl collector, he, he was a guy who would be kind of annoying that he would go on there. You know, you give him records to use and he would like ruin them because he was scratching <laughs> them up so much from yeah. all, of, all of his experimentation. So he was kind of what he did. He got it to the point where he could get those breaks precise as hell mm -hmm. and, and, and really artistic and really just sort of uh, sounding like, you know, instead of like... Uh, you know, you don't want to call it haphazard, but, you know, breaks the merry-go-round certainly was improv and it was <laughs> and it was clever, but it wasn't precise. You know, right. it, was, you know it wasn't precise and it wasn't kind of like, you know, something that came out of test tubes. Uh, or, but whereas what Grandmaster Flash did was. 
And yeah. uh, there's a wonderful passage in, in Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And I know that I, I, I keep uh, mentioning that book, but it, it's worth talking about where, uh, you know, Flash figures out this precision and he goes and debuts it and nobody in the crowd is moved at all. <laughs> Why? Because it's just some DJ doing boring shit, you know, yeah. and, you know, he didn't have the charisma. And so from this. Uh, and this is one of his great contributions is not only was he the kind of the mad scientist and the guy that like really honed the craft of the of the break and of the sample of the, you know, the lot. Well, what I'll call the live sample. Uh, he also assembled uh, several rappers. Right. Uh, and, yeah. You know, mo most famously, Melly Mel. And he kind uh, of he, he, he really kind of he wasn't an MC, but he helped really put the spotlight on the MC. Yes. And what he did. Yeah, exactly. So what they did is is the, he formed it eventually became the Furious Five. Yeah. Uh, and so it would be several uh, rappers up there and they were the show. Right. And so so rather than than him, you know, being the showman. And yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, was was fascinated by what he did. But that alone wasn't going to get him over in right. you know, professional wrestling terms. Yeah. Uh, it was so. This is now bringing the MCs. Now you start to get creeping lyricism, and so from that you start to get uh, MC crews, and right. you know the Cold Crush Brothers that formed in 1978, being one of the more famous ones uh, examples of those. And so you got these MC crews coming up, and a, a lot of that was an outgrowth of, you know, this this introverted geeky DJ uh, out there trying to figure out how to like, you know, keep the party hype. Mm. So, uh, so he did that. And then eventually, you know, they uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, they became famous again. They were another one of those artists like Bambada that was, that found their way onto a label. And in the early eighties had a couple of uh, brilliant singles, the message and white lines being the most famous of them. And so, uh, long live Grandmaster Flash. He's he 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 was he was the scientist. He was the, in in some ways, he was hip hop's first producer. Right. Yeah. He, well. Yeah. Yeah. Because like we said, I think I think the, the 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 shift from DJ to producer. I mean, a lot of people would credit Dr. Dre for being one of the uh, one of the people in the late eighties, early nineties. Like you know, he's he was a DJ. But yeah. with NWA, he was the producer, really. Yeah, uh, well, it was, it was, I think it was Marley Marl more than him that that kind of made the producer the the, uh, mm. the, the big the big artiste. Right. Uh, but but Flash was you know because he was such a he was an engineer he was a born engineer. Right. Uh, he kind of came up you know with without you know he didn't have you know studio consoles or whatever whatever tools he had at his disposal he was able to come up with the same effect and so. So I think that there's a direct lineage from Flash to Dre to uh, to now, you know, some of some of the the younger guys, you know, Kanye, obviously. And so there's a big uh, there's a big lineage there. So uh, more power to uh, Grand Master Flash. And then the fourth person, uh, the fourth and final person, as you said, these hip hop forefathers, I would have thought Melly Mel would, would, was the original dope ass lyricist. But you say no. You say it's Grandmaster Kaz. Yeah, Kaz and and, and Melly Mel is probably more famous. Like though, there were there, there's a reason that I'm I'm signaling out uh, Grandmaster Kaz because he kind of uh, was was a right place, right time kind of guy. Right, and uh, he 
yes, he was he was an MC and he was one of the first to actually have lyrics that made sense and told told stories and had had something more uh, more to say. Uh, and you know, he he was more and he was fluid, too. And so and, and obviously, you know, a lot of the sort of the early history of MCs is kind of unrecorded. You know, there were MCs that bubbled up and the, the, the MCs really start to bubble up on the late edge of this, you know, 77, 78, 79, when they, you know, they they kind of graduate from being the kind of the, the toasters to now mm-hmm. being performers. And so you started to get, you know, uh, again, the the Cold Crush Brothers, which he joined. He wasn't an original Cold Crush Brother, but he joined uh, them. Right. Uh, but he uh, was just uh became legendary and we'll get into that for a reason the reason i'm singling him out uh melly mel yeah is an interesting character he's another one of those guys like cool her that was like pure charisma but he was yeah. he was more old school and he was more limited uh right. kaz you know was was really a, a focused uh, a focused lyricist and the main reason i'm mentioning him is what we're going to talk about next was that lyrics that were stolen by his manager showed up in the first hip-hop single uh known to man and yeah. so uh, there's a connection between what what kaz was writing and what got on the radio and so he kind of helps form that bridge uh there you know coincidentally accidentally whatever you want to say but there's a bridge that goes from the grandmaster kaz's of the world and the Melly Mel's of the world to what ended up on the radio and then how it formed from there, because it was pretty soon after that Curtis Blow uh, was the first rapper signed to a major label. Yeah. And that was in 1980. He came out. So, and, right. So I the, guess this, the is our, this is, yeah, that, that's a classic song. I still like that song. Yeah. Anyway, great song. <laughs> um, this is a great segue into that hip hop single that you are talking about. The immortal Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Yes, Rapper's Delight, uh, which is one of the more curious and fascinating uh, stories in in the history of radio, uh, certainly. And uh, without Rapper's Delight, you don't get what we know today as hip hop. And so so what had happened, as I said before, that uh, really the hip hop movement of the Bronx belonged to those teenagers and, and very young adults that were coming of age in the in the south and and the southern half of the bronx in the mid 70s the early to mid 70s well at that point you know you were starting to get a little bit of aging out that okay we no longer want to party uh in the courtyards with the kids we want to go you know we want to be in the clubs or or whatever, and so you started to get a gradual uh, uh, fade, fading out uh, that was happening uh, there, and so, uh, but at the same time, you know the way things go, you know the, the the originators, you know they're they're five years and six years ahead of the curves. They're, they're starting to calm down. Meanwhile, the people outside of the Bronx uh, are starting to catch on to this, and it's starting to get more popular in the tri-state area. Which means you've got, you know, hey, dollar in a dream, baby. You have lots of entrepreneurs out there. And yeah. there's some of these folks that are hearing this and are being like, holy shit. You know, I mean, we've never heard anything like that. What if we could like get do something with that? Can we make records out of that? And ironically enough, Grandmaster Flash is one of the people that thought that they couldn't because mm-hmm. 
everything was so improv and everything was so long and it was, you know, everything was designed for the party, which means it had right. to go on for hours. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't something that lent itself to even a 15 minute nugget, which the, the long version of rapper's delight is about 14 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, so, and you know, in some ways that's like short <laughs> for, for, for what was going on at this point. Yeah. And so, so while the the first wave and all these all these pioneers and all these innovators and all uh, all of this energy is starting to fade a little bit there in the Bronx it's starting right. to pick up a little bit in the corporate circles or in the entrepreneurial circles mm. and so right place right time here's the story uh so there's a woman named Sylvia Robinson who along with uh, her brother ran a, a a very tiny label called Sugar Hill Records which is named after the Sugar Hill neighborhood in Harlem mm. right and uh, so she is out and about and gets her eyes on hip hop, sees a hip hop performance and, you know, the, the money signs go in her eyes and say, that's how I'm going to that's how I'm going to break out my label. That's how I'm going to succeed. So now she's she's out there scouting and she's trying to figure out how she can do this. Well, she's out in I believe it's Edgewater, New Jersey at a pizza joint. Mm. And so there's a guy working in this pizza parlor in Edgewater, New Jersey named Big Bank Hank. And he is uh, listening to a Cold Crush Brothers uh, song. I believe it was Cold Crush Brothers. And uh, and he's rapping while he's working to this Cold Crush Brothers song. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, just acapella or whatever as he's going. Well, Sylvia Robinson is a customer that happens to hear him rapping. He's like, oh, 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 OK. Hey, would you like to make a record? You know, and it's, it's a recruits Big Bang Hank, who's who's rhyming lyrics written by Grandmaster Cass, who yeah. Hank is managing at that time. He he is Grandmaster Cass. Remember, there's no money in hip hop at this time. Yeah. So so Grandmaster Cass's manager is working at a pizza joint in New Jersey. Lots of uh, inbred networking here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's like, holy shit. And so what they did is, uh, so now they have Hank and Toe. So the label holds auditions and they find two other guys, uh, Wonder Mike and Master G, and they get them together and they just basically, they book a session and out of that session comes Rapper's Delight. And so naturally the fabulous early explosion of hip hop that that was effectively introduced to the world outside of the trade state area. It was done so in the most prefab way possible. <laughs> yeah, and and so so now uh, you know so they do this and they come up with this. So these guys, none of these three guys have any credibility or any any uh, uh, identity. They have no connection to the Bronx parties or the Bronx scene. They have no connection to any of the pioneers. They're just like three random dudes that are just hired to make a rap single for this lady that wants to see if she can get first mover advantage. Well, lo and behold, holy shit, she did. And so uh, it gets out uh, into the uh, out into radio. And in the summer of 79, it blows up as in like 40,000 plays a week kind of yeah. blowed up. And what and, music did it sample or sorry, interpolate? Uh Good times by Chic. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so what it is, is they're in a studio and they have a backing band doing a very crude, 
uh, <laughs> interpolation of uh, Good Times by Sheik, you know, that bass line and that little guitar lick to try yeah. to recreate that. And they're rapping over it and they're going on for 15 minutes. And it's it's a fascinating song. It's a fun song. It really is good. It's a classic single, you know, like it hypes up a party and it did a brilliant accidental job of capturing the spirit of of those hip hop parties. I mean, there were people that were shocked at the time that they could even get it down to 15 minutes, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, and, and th this is hilarious to me that that Big Bang Hank, uh, when he when he goes to use lyrics for that, he he wrote some of the lyrics but he also stole some that he had in his possession from Kaz. And so when he first comes in in like the second minute of the song, the first lyric you hear from him and Grant Kaz was short for Casanova fly, by the way. No. Uh, and so uh, his first lyric is check it out. I'm the C-A-S-A-N, the O-V-A, and the rest is F-L-Y. And so he's telling everybody that he's a different dude. Yeah. The first time we hear him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so, yeah, hip hop's all about appropriation, but that was just downright theft. And of course, you know, Kaz has been bitching ever since. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he probably got a few bucks out of that, but not a nearly. Few. As, yeah, just a few bucks. Yeah. Here's the thing about Sheik's good times. It's the gift that kept on giving. Because yep. not only did we get the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight, the next year in the year 1980, Sheik's good times. Uh, it was. It would not be uh, copied, but it really, really was the basis for one of the biggest hit songs in pop music history. Queens, another one bites the dust. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, obviously, if if you're going to appropriate anything for the first hip hop single, you might as well be "Good Times" by Sheik. And so, yeah. all of this is a very happy accident. If this one lady hadn't walked into this one pizza joint in new jersey in 1979 <laughs> and overhearing some random dude rapping some other guy's lyrics under his breath <laughs> we, we we wouldn't have uh hip-hop the industry the industry the industrial product the actual commodity of hip-hop yeah. we right. would not have it if it wasn't for that and so yeah. it's worth it's worth talking about that story because what it shows is is that uh of course, the most magical, organic thing uh, ever, arguably, to happen in music kind of stumbles its way into prominence. That mm. it, it wasn't really at the behest of anybody that had anything to do with the scene. There was nobody There was nobody in there that was that ambitious. Now, granted, yeah. once, the, once the, the ball got rolling downhill uh, in 1980, uh, Curtis Blow was signed to a major... But uh, Bambada and Grandmaster Flash and the Cold Crush Brothers and the Treacherous Three, all, all those bands, all those groups, they all had deals uh, by 1981. And it, it went from there. But none of those guys was actually ambitious as like, a, you know, hey, it was a hey, look at me culture. It wasn't a hey, look at me. Now let's go make like a million dollars. Yeah, it, it was. It, hey, it look was, at me. I am somebody more yeah, than anything. Else. Look at me. I am somebody. And we're surviving the South Bronx in the 1970s by holding the best parties on the history in the history of the universe. Yeah. You know, it, <laughs> it, 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 this I said this was not a commercial racket. This was not an entrepreneurship uh, uh, play. I mean, it was just it was pure fun. It was pure music. It was pure culture. And lo and behold. It was it was outsiders that brought it to the world. Yeah. 
Sure, yeah. absolutely. And hip hop, you know, yeah, it, it, they were. It's a music made by outsiders that eventually brought the insiders in, and hip hop became the ultimate insider mainstream pop music that it is now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, so what is the legacy of this, uh, Arturo? If you, if if I had to ask you what the legacy of what uh, these folks were doing there uh, in the pre-dawn of, of hip-hop there in the Bronx. What would you say the major legacy? How would you articulate that? DIY, do it yourself. You don't have to go to music school and spend thousands of dollars to play an instrument extremely well and play music with like 10, cor uh, 10 chord progressions and 50 notes per second and, and, and study the greats of music. Just go out there and do your thing yourself your own way you don't have to go to school to do it basically yeah exactly and and not only that but the uh hip-hop itself is about competition but it's also about innovation and so right. it's it's up to the next guy to figure or the next person to figure out how to advance it and so it's not longer in the bronx it's now in it, it's around the corner from you it's uh it's it's your next door neighbor it's uh it's your uncle. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, it, it's all over community. the place. And so, community. you know, yeah, absolutely. DIY and community via competition, which is a hard thing for some people to understand. But yeah, that's that's what it was. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, there's also when you talk about the legacy, too, and it's extraordinary because, uh, you know, people and, and some of these persons, they keep figuring out ways to to advance it, you know? And so, you know, from there, you know, you get like trap music or you get uh, uh, some of the stuff that's been coming out of the South lately, which is pretty exciting. And, or you get British hip hop, you get grime, or now, you know, you've got, uh, since Nicki Minaj broke like 15 years ago or whenever it was, we're on a uh, beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Now you've got an artist like Flo Millie, yeah. who, you know, you and I both love and who we yeah. think is just fantastic. Now, granted, you know, there was probably no room for women to, you know, and there were some there were some female MCs back then uh, right. that were that were associated with the Zulu Nation and also with Grandmaster Flash. But they weren't as prominent uh, and they didn't have the the stardom ability that they they have now. But, you know, Fall Millie, you know, with that, you know, the fact that she can get in there and step up and she's all about competition. You know, she's yeah. all about she's all about beating back all those hoes. You know? <laughs> and bitches yeah she, she loves yeah. to go off on that <laughs> yeah 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 she does and on that note uh, as we always do at the end of these episodes uh please become a member of our fabulous curmudgeonly community on facebook uh, a lot of uh, merry myth and mirth to be had there uh, arturo is continuing to whip out his lists of uh, uh of best albums by year we just posted studio 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 albums studio albums and we just uh, put up our 1970 or his 1979 list on there so go check that out facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock uh if you have anything to say about our take on uh on the origins of hip-hop anything that you disagree with anything that you think we didn't put quite right or things that you loved uh write us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and then go visit us on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called now. Uh, we're still up there. Uh, Jason Isbell is still fabulous. Uh, Stephen Hyden is still fabulous. And we're fabulous. 
So uh, please come visit us there. At Curmudgeon Pod is the handle. And also look out for a Spotify playlist, uh, sort of, uh, for this uh, for this episode. Uh, uh, to the extent that we can make one, we, we will. 